Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I cannot believe I caught you here. When I got together with you, you promised you would have no further contact with Dolores. You lied to me. I knew you hadn't really let go of her. This is her funeral. Yeah, exactly my point. You're still getting together with her, even now that she's dead. I had to come to this. Dolores was a professional assassin. Nobody comes to their funerals. The government of Belgium is claiming she didn't even exist. Uh, Is that what I have to do to get your attention? Be 77 years old and skilled with a sniper rifle and die trying to take out a colonel in Ecuador? That was a different time of my life. I was into how much older and more dangerous Dolores was, but I'm so over that now. I want a life with you. You know what I did last week? I strangled a North Korean trade minister and you didn't even notice. That was you? That was you? If Dolores had done it, you'd be all, oh, Dolores is so great with piano wire. If Dolores had killed that guy, you would have sent her a freaking pajamagram. What's a pajamagram? Don't try to change the subject. Look, it's clear I just can't compete with her. I'm not old. I don't know how to use explosives. I I wasn't involved in the secret government murder of Burl Ives. Shh! That was told to me in strictest confidence. No one knows that. I can't believe I shared it with you. See? You're still covering up for her. The man who sang Holly Jolly Christmas. But you take her side. There was a rational basis. I can't say what it was. Why can't you love me the way that you love her? Look, your insane jealousy is what's suffocating this relationship, not Dolores. She never liked suffocation. Said it took too long. Do you see how everything comes back to her? Martin told me you were always going to do that. You're still talking to Martin? Yesterday was the anniversary of the bank robbery. I went to see him in prison. You promised me you were over him. We should really go see our couple's counselor. Yeah, Dolores shot him. Uh, I keep forgetting. Today's show is about jealousy. And now he drove from Houston to Florida in a diaper. Unfortunately, not because he was jealous. Colin McEnroe. It was just something on my bucket list. Uh, no, obviously the reference to the uh, driving from Houston to Florida in a diaper is a reference to Lisa Nowak, the former astronaut who, impelled by jealousy, in the grip of jealousy, uh, drove from Houston to Florida for the purpose of wreaking mischief and or havoc upon her rival for the affections of another astronaut. Um, and the reason she wore the diaper was because she didn't want to have to stop. She was so obsessed, so, I don't even know how to describe this, but so completely, as I say, in the grip of the green-eyed monster, she didn't want to have to stop for a bathroom break, so she wore a diaper. And that becomes the thing that everyone remembers. And I will argue, as the show goes on, it places her in one of two possible jealousy categories, at least in, in terms of literary iconography, uh, the monster or the fool. You know, I, she's the, she becomes the fool because of the diaper. Swan, Proust's swan, I think, becomes the fool at a certain point. But other jealousy uh, victims become monsters and perpetrators as opposed to victims. Ah, we didn't do this show so I could babble about it. we got to get going here. So the reason for all of this is an excellent book by Peter Tui. He's one of our guests. He's a professor in the Department of Classics and Religion at the University of Calgary. 
the author of a number of books, including one about boredom. Uh, but his newest is this recent book, Jealousy, which is sort of a cross-cultural, inter- interdisciplinary look at jealousy in all of its myriad forms, uh, ranging from MRI brain scans to the Bible to art to everything in between. Also joining us is Martin Fashbaugh, an assistant professor of English at Black Hills State University in Spearfish, South Dakota. Uh, he's the author of The Economy of Jealousy in 19th Century British Literature. Also joining us briefly here at the beginning of the show, she can't stay too long, but we're going to come to her in just a second, because I wanted to talk to one purely creative person, a person who creates, uh, and who, and so Nerissa Neils is a uh, both a uh, national touring musician uh, and a novelist, uh, and so in her work. I wanted to talk to somebody who creates because jealousy, we're going to argue over the course of the show, impels an awful lot of creativity uh, for different reasons, uh, because of what's going on in the creator's life and also because it's such a great motive to ascribe to people uh, in your fiction, in your songs or whatever. Anyway, so uh, Peter Tui, first of all, welcome to the show. We're going to begin with you. Um, Maybe we could begin by attempting to define uh, jealousy and uh, differentiate it from envy. Uh, So how do we do that? Um. It's usually said to be a matter of gains and losses, gains for envy and loss for uh, loss for jealousy. But jealousy has got to have a, a triangulated situation. There's got to be two people or three people or two people in a thing. The uh, emotions have got to run very high because of the potential of the loss uh, to one of the people of one of the other people or or one of the things that sounds a little more complicated than it is, but I think you, you you get the picture there. I hope envy, on the other hand, is still triangulated, though it's sometimes said to be just involved two things, but it's usually two people and a thing, and it's a thing that you would like to have very much. Your neighbour's got a big car, you may be envious of him, and you'd like to gain that car. Uh, jealousy is a matter of loss. Your partner to somebody or other else. That's the usual distinction. Uh, it it doesn't play out so well in in real life, I don't think. In language, we constantly flip-flop between the two terms, usually taking jealousy as the stronger term and envy as the weaker term. It's okay to be envious, but it's bad to be jealous. Um, and there are, there are lots of reasons why we could, or how we could illustrate the two blending together if, uh, if we want to come back to it. But maybe envy and jealousy, there's the simple distinction, gain and loss. Well, yes. And um, I actually, we can do it. Uh, exp- we can also explain it. In, I think there's a zero sum quality to jealousy that isn't so true about envy. In other words, um, uh, when I'm jealous, I'm jealous because only one person, I think, can have whatever this thing is. Uh, and somebody else is getting it, presumably the love or, or the sexual favors of, of somebody else. It's why, I mean, Freud doesn't talk about penis jealousy. He talks about penis envy. It isn't that only one person can have a penis. Uh, lots of people can have penises, but if you don't have one, you might envy the people who do. Um, and, but actually, let's let's stay with an example, and it's maybe something where we can bring uh, Martin Fashbaugh into this, too. So Harold Bloom says that Shakespeare essentially invented sexual jealousy, and then everybody else from Hawthorne to Proust kind of just inherited it and had to deal with it uh, either on his terms or not. Um, but so uh, in Othello, we really have two jealous people, or maybe we have a jealous person and an envious person. Uh, I mean, Othello is obviously driven to extremes by obsessive jealousy that's planted there by Iago. But Iago's the more interesting person because it, it's less clear whether he has a bad case of jealousy or a bad case of envy. Um, and so um, 
Peter, I'll let you start out, but I also want to hear uh, Martin on this, too. Uh, who is Iago to you? Is he a jealous guy or an envious guy? Or, or do you think this is the point of conflation? This is the point of conflation, I think. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't believe you can distinguish them terribly well in, in most cases. It's the sort of it, – it's academics and, uh, and, and people who work with, with words and thoughts like to distinguish things too readily. But if, if you're working with a, with a triangle, one of which elements can be a thing, um, and if you're, if you're also defining it by extremely heightened emotions – um, and, and loss is a slippery thing, it can be gain as well, um, then he's a jealous man. But in a sense, does it matter? Uh, the play works anyway, and I think we're sort of talking about um, almost semantics in a way. Well, you know, I want to come back to that. I mean, uh, in fact, Martin, I'm going to pause you for a second before I go to you just because I'm watching the clock here and I have Nerissa Niels for uh, a limited amount of time. I'm going to go over to, to Nerissa for a second. But somebody remind me that how much I, I want to come back to Iago and Cassio and, and what that's all about. So, um, so um, Nerissa Niels uh, joins us now. Um, she is uh, a songwriter uh, and had a band called The Niels and still has a band called The Niels, but it's a different kind of band. Uh, also a writer. So Nerissa, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thank you. And so wh when I first contacted you about this and, and, you know, sort of said in terms of a creative impulse, in terms of sort of the, the, the stuff that you work with, is, is jealousy a big deal? And you, your answer was yes, but in some ways it felt so powerful uh, to you that you tried to almost kind of reframe it in other ways. Explain what you meant by that. All right. Well, I appreciate this discussion, and I understand the distinction of jealousy and envy in a similar way to what you've been discussing. Envy, I actually think, is essential for the artist and good for the artist. I think envy is a map that shows us what we, where we want to go, and and so in that way, it can be very helpful if, if you know, if we if we see what we're lacking and what we see in another having that we want creatively. Um, we, we know what our work is, and we know what we need to do. Jealousy, on the other hand, um, I, I, I agree. It's a zero-sum game. It's about other people, and I think it's, it's nothing but destructive unless it can be um, sort of poured into the crucible and, and turned into love and forgiveness. And um, I, my own experiences of jealousy is as a very little person, I think we're so painful that uh, I'm afraid to go there uh, artistically, and I always couch it in a lot of redemption and love. Um, and that be and in my songwriting, and I gave you a couple of examples of, of songs I've written that I think demonstrate that 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 the jealousy is so painful that the narrator can only uh, move towards a kind of a generosity because to live in that jealousy is hell. Um, so one has to relinquish the beloved in order to get out of the hell. I mean, that's, that's the only way I, I, as a person, can understand how to get out of jealousy is to, is to let go and not fight for the, for the beloved. Um, in the novel that I'm writing, all of the main characters are motivated by jealousy. And, that, and so I write very directly about jealousy and its corrosive aspects. Um, in my novel, The Big Idea. 
Well, let me ask you this about the songs for a second. And we're going to yeah. play uh, towards the end of this conversation so we don't eat up your time playing your music, uh, one of those songs. But I'm wondering also whether, I mean, in a song, you have to condense things. Uh, you have to condense things into, in, into lines and verse. And, and, and you can't, you're not writing a novel. You're writing a song. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm going to press you on this a little bit. Is it possible that one reason that, uh, yeah, you've written a lot of songs about people who, could conceivably be, be could conceivably be jealous, but instead mm-hmm. work it all out through con- some kind of different metaphor or some kind of way of understanding this or or of uh, packaging it all up into something else. Is that because it would jealousy is so primal that to try to write a song about it, it would just come out as one barbaric yawp, you know, one just inchoate howl. <laughs> that it would, it's I, I, yeah, right. And and there's a place for that, you know. I mean. <laughs> I think a lot of rock and roll is is that it is an inchoate howl, and I love it. You know, I I'm, I I think it it can create fantastic music. For me as an artist, it's not it's 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 so uncomfortable. I don't want to be in that place, and so I guess I spare my narrators a little bit, or I maybe I don't spare them. Maybe I sacrifice them. Maybe maybe it would feel really good to write a song that's right in the sweet spot of jealousy and the feeling and letting the song, you know, reverberate with that pain, that primal pain. I do think it's the primal pain. I think it's the primal pain that we all experience when we're babies and we, you know, we feel that unconditional love. And at some point or another, that, that beam of love, I guess maybe not always, but, um, so frequently it goes to another at some point in a person's life. And certainly for me, that was like the primal pain. Well, there's that primal pain, and there's also the primal pain of toilet training where it finds out, no, you actually have to do things. You have to a certain <laughs> way or you don't get approval. Um, mm. And so Freud is the other person who writes the map for us. So very quickly, because I know you have to go. So let's just we're going to play a little bit of this song. So this is an example. It's called Sarah with your ring. It is about somebody who has every right to be jealous. It's about mm-hmm. a woman who's in love with somebody else's man. And she's writing, she's addressing the song to the other, to, to not the other woman, she's the other woman, to the first woman. Um, and, and so uh, say, say anything you want about this song before we play it and, and bid you farewell in the process. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, well, this, this just came to me as, um, you know, the way through jealousy is is to see i guess in the triangula- triangulation that you're talking about um the focus is on one corner of the triangle always and the object of um competition is is depersonified um and so in this song what i was attempting to do was to have have the narrator fully see the person she was most jealous of and who ha- and envious because she's it's, uh, there's also envy in there who has what she wants the ring and the man and to to humanize that relationship because why not that's you know in a lot of ways you know the iago story has been told for millennia i think it's it's pretty interesting to write about the other two sides of the triangle all right not the focus 
Well, Narissa, I know that you have to go. Narissa Niels, we'll get you back uh, for a longer conversation sometime. Uh, uh, good to hear your voice again, old friend. Uh, here's Thank you. Okay. I appreciate it a lot. Let's hear a little of Sarah with your ring as uh, Narissa hangs up the phone and goes about the rest of her day. Uh, and we're going to come back with, uh, with well, more conversations about jealousy. I should say our number, 860-275-7266. You have your own theories about jealousy, 860-275-7266. Or you may tweet them at WNPR Colin. Uh, where it's manned by Greg Hill, who likes you the best of all the people who Twitter. Let's hear the song. Pieces of the sky are falling. I look out the window to the green. All right, that's uh, Sarah with your ring. All right, let's go back to our other guests here. I want to come back, uh, Peter Tui uh, and uh, Martin Fashbar, to this whole question. And I want to come back to Iago for a second. Um, and so, um, Martin Fashbar, I want to add you to the conversation, too. Um, so, actually, let's not talk about Iago. Just talk, let's talk about jealousy in general and sort of how, how it plays out as, as, uh, as an impulse in, in literature um, it, it's, I think Harold Bloom, in writing about um, the Scarlet Letter, says that Chillingworth uh, is obviously a jealous man, uh, and his jealousy almost seems to be about, it's almost, ex- almost existential. It's almost, is there a place for me uh, if somebody else has this thing that I want? And, and I wonder, Martin, whether you could talk about that generally. I mean, that's one of, one of the things jealousy seems like to me. Maybe the reason Nerissa Nields can't write very easily about it in music is it really is there's something obliterating about at least the most primordial kind of jealousy. Um, that's an interesting uh, term, prim- primordial di- jealousy. Um, par- one of the theories upon which my work is based is um, you know, Freud's Oedipus Complex. Um, and uh, you know, we were talking about the, uh, the 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 binary between jealousy and envy. And uh, in my in my dissertation, I uh, essentially argue that uh, that jealousy is a more primal. And I know others will argue with me, but uh, jealousy is a more primal emotion if you were to apply uh, Freud uh, because of the Oedipus complex, which is the original triangular uh, structure in which the uh, the subject. Uh, discovers uh the male subject and uh discovers that his um father is uh um in love with his mother and he experiences this sense of the sense of loss upon which all other emotions become predicated on 
uh, for the rest of that individual's life. Actually, I want to pause you there and just uh, switch over to Peter for a second. He's making a really interesting point. It's a point you make in your book. You explore Freud a lot. So, you know, on the one hand, we talk about jealousy as kind of at least the threshold of a sin and a kind of madness and an anger and a dysfunction. Freud kind of overthrows that classical tradition a little bit and sort of says, well, no, if you're not jealous, you're not normal. I mean, you, you jealousy is wired into us from birth. So in some ways, uh, Peter, Freud's making kind of a paradigm shift here. Um, I, I perhaps, perhaps. I, I, I think animals experience jealousy, and I think jealousy is, because it's an emotion, is a, is a not quite a constant through history, but it's something that's present through history. And I think what what Freud does is, is with a, perhaps with a number of other people in uh, in that period around uh, the middle of the 1890s, um, throws it into prominence and formulates it in a way that uh, catches the nerve, catches something something that's in the air at that period. Um, I'm not a Freudian. Um, I, I believe in the poetic truth of Freud, so I'm... I'm um, I guess we differ a little bit on, on that side of things. So um, I don't know whether that's quite an answer to, to, to what you're saying, but, well, but anyhow, that's my take on things. It's a good enough answer to get me to a break. I've taken an early break today. Uh, we, we, we'll do a little in like 15, 20 minutes. We're going to do a little bit of public radio fundraising. So I'm going to break early. We're going to come back. We'll have more of Peter, more of Martin. Uh, I think each of them is getting very jealous about who gets to talk more. So I have to deal with that somehow. Fortunate man, you have danced with him since the music began. Won't you change partners and dance with me? How would you define jealousy? Well, obviously, something you desire and then you can't get it, and you wish, you know, like the other person has it, and it's just a really intense feeling. Jealousy is somebody that no matter how nice you are to them or how much you care about them, they still are mean to you. Jealousy is like being envious of an ability or something that somebody has or something that you covet of someone else's. I think it's more of an insecurity than anything else. If you're with someone and you feel comfortable and confident in that relationship but you don't trust them, maybe it's your own insecurity and your own person you don't trust. Uh, useless emotion. All right. That's Jackie Filson out there gathering voices from the streets uh, about uh, jealousy. So, um, you know, um, uh, Martin Fashbaugh, uh, Nerissa Neal's uh, touched on an interesting subject, and it's something that kind of comes up on your work. She sort of talked about the jealousy of her characters in song and in novels, but she also talked about the jealousy of the creative person. And it's interesting that she brought that up. I, getting ready for the show, I contacted uh, one of my novelist friends and asked uh, her if she wanted to be on this show about jealousy uh, because uh, of jealousy, the, the way it sort of rears up in her work. And she automatically assumed that I was talking about the literary marketplace, not about the writing that she's done, the characters in, in her work. And, and I got that a lot, <laughs> you know, that there's something about the creative person, and this is in your work too. You, you're basically arguing that the creative person exists, can exist in a jealous state constantly because um, of this notion that one writer will profit and prevail over another. I'm, I'm probably doing a bad job of, of restating that. No, not at all. Uh, yeah, my dissertation is rooted in 19th century British literature, and I'm particularly interested in uh, 
the Victorian poet's predicament, um, uh, you know, after after 1830, in which you have um, a crisis in the poetic marketplace, uh, a crisis in poetry, if you will, in which very few uh, collections of poetry were being um, produced. Uh, this was a this was an age of uh, prose, an age in which the novel had replaced poetry as the most popular literary genre. So I argue that Victorian poets were actually placed in this uh, jealous predicament, if you will, in which they have, in, in which they're they have to find a way to cope with the current market conditions. And uh, my argument is the the dramatic monologue and the verse novel, which is hybrid, which are hybrid genres, uh, try to combine. Uh, the best of both worlds, try to combine uh, prose with lyric poetry um, as a way of negotiating between um, uh, the principles of artistic autonomy and the principle of, uh, of uh, writing uh, to, uh, to, sell, to sell their works. And to sell their works, they've had to make their work a more um, marketable to the middle-class readership. You know, uh, Peter Tui, this is in your book, too, a lot about the uh, jealousy and envy uh, among writers, among creative people. But I want to come back to Iago for a second, because I think it fits. Maybe I'm pounding a square peg into a round hole here. But, you know, what's Iago's problem? Well, he's got a lot of problems. He basically envies everybody. Um, but, he, you know, he envies Cassio in particular, and, and he, he feels as though there is this kind of marketplace where one person prevails and the other one doesn't. And he says Cassio has a kind of daily beauty that, would, that renders me ugly or something like that. Um, and, and and so you, you think in, maybe Shakespeare is making that connection, that the professional jealousy, we could call it that, that Iago feels towards Cassio, is also personal jealousy, that envy and jealousy and, and jealousy as it turns up in the burning heart of Othello. It's all kind of the same wormwood, just packaged up differently. Packaged up with different characters, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I, I don't find Othello a hugely compelling character, Um which I suppose is like swearing in church, but um, Iago particularly, um, pretty much for the reasons you're saying, it's it's the um, that blending of, of envy and jealousy, never quite understanding his motive, the corrosive effect it has on him. Um, none of that seems to make sense with uh, Othello, or perhaps I'm being a simple Australian there. No, I don't think you are. I, I think, well, anyway, we, we are going to have to do a quick, and I apologize for all the breaks here, but the, we're going to stop doing this when we come back and go straight to the end of the show. We're going to take a, a short break here. We're talking about jealousy. Uh, our guest right now, Martin Fashbaugh, assistant professor of English at Black Hill State University in Spearfish, South Dakota. Peter Tui's great new book, and it, it is cross-cultural and cross-disciplinary. We're going to talk when we come back uh, about MRI scans, because you always have to know uh, these days what's going on in the brain. Anytime you're talking about anything, you get to the MRI scan. Uh, right away. So we'll talk brain scans. We'll talk about what gets activated. We'll talk about Gene Harris and Lisa Nowak and O.J. Simpson and actual fictional characters as well. announcer who was on right before me was he hitting on you were you flirting with him you like him better don't you 
Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eric Stoltz. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff having a screaming fight over who Rich Hanley likes better, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to Botox. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back. We're talking to Peter Tui. He's a professor in the Department of Classics and Religion at the University of Calgary, the author of a number of books, uh, most recently, Jealousy, which is what we're talking about today. So, uh, Peter Tui, so much to cover, uh, so little time. Uh, I think it is interesting to talk about the differences in the sexes uh, when it comes to jealousy. We have things that we think we know about that, and then to that we add brain scans, cranial information about uh, parts of the brain that are activated when people are jealous. So this is in your book as well. Tell us what's been found. It may not be, I, I don't mean to be too reductionist about it because neurology is not truth necessarily, but what, what does neurology tell us? Um, I guess you're leading to, to fMRIs here, I think, yes. and, and maybe I should preface it with what I heard from a um, from a local neurologist, a pretty good one, just the other day. He says, I don't trust these fMRI scans. And uh, the room went quiet because this guy is, uh, is a pretty senior fellow and he knows what he's talking about. He says, I do other things. And he never told us what he does, but he said why he doesn't trust them is he said, you ask a question, the machine takes the reading, and some seconds later you get a result. And he says, but uh, within the brain, the uh, reaction is produced within 30 or so milliseconds. Now, what are you actually recording, he says, if it's taking several seconds? This is a, a, almost a, a cranial lifetime in between the, um, the reaction in the brain and the fMRI's result. So I was uh, pretty astounded by that. Who's not drawn to skepticism? And uh, th that, that provides a, a, uh, what a check on too much enthusiasm for, for the results of these fMRI scans, um, or at least a caution. But your initial question was, what's it got to do with things? Well, this, this work was published by a man called Takahashi in, in Japan in the um, about 2006, 2008, and others have uh, replicated or, or said the same things, David Buss in the United States and so on, that women and men experience it differently. According to the fMRI, the woman's reaction is produced in the verbalizing portion of the brain. The male's is, is linked more to the corporeal or the visceral section of the brain so that men react emotionally and uh, I guess in a bodily sort of way uh, women according to what Takahashi says react in a uh, um, a more thoughtful way to jealous situations and if that doesn't lead um, a person to being accused of sexism I don't know what it does but uh, don't shoot the messenger I'm just telling you the story that's that's where it sits I think with the caution to start with and the results well, it kind of fits uh, uh, an informal demarcation that we all make, right? I mean, uh, obviously, one size does not fit all people. But uh, when we talk about men and women and jealousy, I mean, it, it, it is a commonplace to say that a woman is more likely to be jealous of the emotional component of, uh, of a relationship. In other words, if you are involved with somebody else, she wants to know, if, is it an emotional involvement? Does it parallel, resemble, or maybe even triumph over the emotional involvement that she has with you? Whereas a man wants to know if you had sex with somebody else. That's right. Yeah, that's Buss's distinction, too, going back a little bit further. 
Um, whether that's true in real life, it there seems something in it, doesn't there? But not all the way down the line. Well, Buss's argument would be pr- partly evolutionary in nature, right? So men need mm. to know whether there's uh, uh, men need to know whether there's been sexual fidelity, and their impulses mm. are activated. He or Helen Thomas would say their impulses are activated by the notion of sexual infidelity because their interest, you know, that's wired into them at a preconscious level, is on passing their DNA down to the next generation. If they don't know out there on the grasslands of Africa in our in our you know pre-human state, if they don't know who's child this is, it really screws everything up. Whereas women are going to be more interested in creating a network of emotion and resources and they also may be interested in having lots of genetic material to mess around with to get their genes passed on. But it's a different bargain somehow. It certainly is, isn't it? The woman knows who the child belongs to and is going to maximize the child's chances, which means uh, uh, doing what they can in this primordial world to uh, to keep the male loyal and constant to her. And uh, that's where the verbalising, intellectualising line would, would come in. Um, and uh, perhaps Takahashi's work supports the um, bus's arguments and, and the sort of things you're saying. Uh, one of the things that's uh, clear from your book, Jealousy, is that this this topic then comes comes from our pre-human existence, uh, for, uh, from our hominid existence, right into civilization, right? There's al- it's almost impossible to find a moment where civilization starts and, and stories of jealousy are not around. They are in the Bible. Uh, they are in our earliest myths, correct? That's right, yes. yes. They're sort of unavoidably present. They come and they go quite a bit, and I think that's that's one of the interesting things with what Martin was saying. Some periods seem to highlight and need uh, certain emotions, jealousy or whatever, more than others. Um, and it may be in the, the 19th century. Um, the emotion was, um, for a variety of reasons, one was the, the powerful argument that he had about the, uh, the, the problem of, of poets simply publishing in this period. Um, it becomes um, much more to the fore. And then, if you like, somebody like Freud can can piggyback on this, not consciously, but uh, in other periods, say Rome or Greece that, that I work with, it's, uh, it's, it's a, less crucial, uh, a less crucial emotion. It appears, but um, not as it does in modern literature. So um, I want to go back to the Bible for a second. The jealousy is all over the Bible, and envy, jealousy slash envy, all over the Bible. I mean, it's certainly there uh, in, in Cain and Abel. It's there uh, in uh, David and Uriah. Uh, it's there It's there in some of Jesus' parables. Um, and it's there really in the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. I mean, there's something implicitly uh, about jealousy and envy there. But I'm wondering if we can draw an unbroken through line from the Bible to our modern understanding of jealousy. Are they talking about the same thing that we're talking about when we say O.J. Simpson was jealous uh, of uh, his wife and and whoever she was having sex with, his ex-wife and whoever she was having sex with these days, and so he murdered her? Um, Are we talking about the same thing as jealousy in the Bible? It's. I think you've got to look at every each situation as they come. Really, much less so, I think, than than the O.J. Um, Simpson situation because of the different dynamics of the of the societies in the Bible. You're dealing with a, um, what could you say? Not the words, not a collectivist sort of a society, um, as you do with many of these these seemingly preliterate societies. Um, that's not the world we inhabit now. It's. 
it's a continuous line because it's an emotion and emotions are always with us but they're not always registered in quite as strongly and necessarily in quite the same ways so yes and no i'd say um, it's it's there. Uh, jealousy is there in the myths. And, you know, as I was reading your book, I was sort of thinking, well, you know, why is there so much jealousy, for example, among the Greek gods, the Olympian gods? And and it struck me that there might be two reasons. One of them is how, how else can we understand gods? In other words, gods would be so far above us, so different from us, unless they were prey to some of our most basic and destructive foibles. And then I think it's also a good answer to the problem of evil and the problem of things like why do things go wrong in the world? Why, is, why doesn't the don't the gods make every Everything just terrific for that for themselves and for us. It's be well. One of the possible reasons would be because they're jealous. So I, I don't know if you want to tell the apple of discord story or, or give another example. But there's so many examples in the myths about gods being jealous of one another. Yes, the the apple of discord story. That's that's the beginning of the Trojan War you're referring to at the at the wedding of, of Peleus and Thetis. That strife turned up. Who hadn't been invited to the party and uh, and and threw an apple into the midst of the uh, into the midst of the gods that said something like to the most beautiful and um, three goddesses Athena and uh, and Juno and Venus um, all believed that they were it so a sort of a, a judging um, contest was was launched and Venus won by bribing. Uh, bribing Paris, who was the judge, and he was promised the most beautiful woman in the world, which was Helen, and of course that started the war. Um, I guess the, the the difficulty in a situation like that is it envy of one another? Is it um, is it jealousy? Is it prestige for looks they're worried about, or, or quite what? It becomes it's where the the distinction between jealousy and and envy really does break down, which is something that. That, that I believe you can't be too hard and fast in trying to distinguish the two. I think that's right, and but I think also one of the things that makes it complicated is is there's something in jealousy. Uh, there's a short jump from jealousy to recognition of merit, right? If if I'm uh, if I'm in love with a woman X and uh, she is not in love with me, and in fact she's in love with somebody else, or if she has been my lover and now she seems to love somebody else more, there immediately a lot of questions of merit and worth come up. Uh, is he better than me? Wait a minute, I think I'm pretty. Good. What about all the things that I've done? What about all the accomplishments that I have? Um, the rejection of me and the preference of somebody else raises a million questions even about how we evaluate one another so that um, I forget where I'm going. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I can see where you're going. Yes, you, you, your whole sense of self-worth is brought into, um, is brought into question by, by the rejection that the jealousy involves and, uh, um, and self-worth and merit hence come up. Am I, in fact, worthless that I've been dumped so readily and so easily? Uh, for sure, I think that's one of the emotions. But then, of course... Another way is just plain grief. Um, it's it's hard to pin down the emotion that people feel because they're having an emotion. If you see what I mean, it's it's doing the the same operation on the on the same theorem or something like that. But um, self worth along your lines, but certainly grieving, just plain grief that you've been dumped. And what does life seem like um, without that person? And the jealousy is um, is the triangulated situation with this heightened emotion of of grief. That's what I find most common in it. But I think what you're suggesting comes in just as well. 
All right. Um, yeah, and there's this kind of sense also that in that notion of everything containing its own opposite, you know, that the madness of love yields to the madness of jealousy uh, very easily, and they're both madnesses, you know, the, and the exaltation that we feel uh, and exaltation we feel uh, when in love, uh, ha- uh, there's a fine membrane on the other side of that, that if we feel rejected, if we feel uh, that, that our lover has chosen someone else, it goes into, you know, the, the mirror uh, and reverse, the negative image of that. Um, let's go ahead, grab a quick mm-hmm. call from Chris in a car. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. Am I coming through clear? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so uh, I'm driving, and I'll try to do this carefully. Um, I may have a senior moment or two, but just two questions, and then you can get offline. You had earlier mentioned that that uh, uh, a distinguishing uh, feature, at least according to Freud, was that jealousy uh, uh, is potentially hardwired. And you began discussing this in a little more detail recently. And the question I have for you is, uh, I would think if something like jealousy were hardwired, it would need to, from an evolutionary standpoint, confer an advantage. And it strikes me that jealousy overwhelmingly does not confer advantages. In fact, it leads to horrible outcomes. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stop you there for because our time is short. Well, I mean, Peter, the argument would be the advantage it confers is the advantage of watchfulness, of scrutiny. With jealousy, we associate a scrutiny, a peeping through the blinds, um, you know, making absolutely sure that our turf isn't being invaded. And, and, and that does have an evolutionary advantage. Yes, I mean, and, and it, it's who knows in what societies um, the exercise of violence when you're jealous um, how do you know it? It won't confer you an advantage. You might kill your opponent, for example, and and scare your partner into into submission, which would then guarantee your uh, confer you the um, the evolutionary advantage of passing on your on your genetic pool. Um, I guess genes are a pretty ruthless thing in that way. The difficulty for us is that doesn't work now, and hence the the great disadvantages of being violent in jealousy now, because we have a legal code and uh, and a huge amount of social dip disapprobation of that sort of behaviour. But but it's easy to imagine um, where a violence in um, a jealous situation would confer a. Um, Absolutely. Advantage. Absolutely. Mm. And Peter Tui, there we must rest. I could talk about this a lot more. The book is fascinating. Jealousy by Peter Tui. Thanks to Lydia Brand for putting this show together. And we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> well, I think it sort of fits the anniversary of Botox. I don't know. Let me ask Greg. Honey, Lucy wants to know when we can come over for dinner. When are we free? Uh, I don't know. Let's check the calendar. Who the hell is May?